Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's talk about the strategy forward. Mona Mahajan with us with Allianz Global Investors. Strategy in the U.S., but everybody, Mona, everybody yesterday was an EU strategist, weren't we? <laughs> That's right, Tom. Uh, yeah, you know, the Draghi press conference was a little bit on the depressing side. You know, he talked about weakness in China. He talked about possible weakness in the U.S., but then really brought it back to the euro area itself, noting German autos in particular, Italy weakening overall. So, um, you know, I think in a, a week where we are void of real, you know, news flow, that really kind of took center stage. Mona, why is the ECB always the last to the party? You should never have to cut your forecast as aggressively as they had to yesterday. And the only reason they had to cut their forecast that aggressively is because they've been dragged kicking and screaming into delivering the mere culpa we got yesterday. Why are they always the last to the party, Mona? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. And we talk about how, uh, you know, the US and Asia really have had a key source of growth um, driving their economy over the last 10 years, and that was in part technology and innovation. Uh, in the U.S., it was the FANG stocks. In, the, in China and Asia, the BAT stocks. We look to Europe, and we don't see that same sort of innovation productivity coming out of that region. Of course, they're also mired in political uncertainty and difficulty around being an export-oriented economy. Right. Uh, so in some ways, they just haven't perhaps picked up on one of the key drivers of growth probably going forward as right. well. I mean, I know, Mona, it was a quiet December and then a quiet January and a quiet February. John and I aged. You didn't. But now <laughs> what after Draghi? Do you make a strategy adjustment off the market reaction to Draghi's bombshell? Yeah, you know, I think our strategy even going into this year had been a bit of a barbell approach. Um, and we talk about how, on one hand of that barbell, we still prefer the U.S. as best in the block from a developed market perspective. The other hand of that barbell was really China and selective EM, which were, you know, poised to do well with not only a potential trade deal, but the selective stimulus measures they're facing and uh, valuations that had really catered, uh, cratered last year. So, you know, some attractiveness there. In the middle of that barbell in, in no man's land was Europe still. And I think, um, you know, not only Brexit, but some of the economic uncertainty we talked about was what was driving that decision. You know, at some yeah. point, Europe may become interesting from a, a dividend perspective. So I think, you know, with the euro stocks at a 3.8% yield and FTSE at 4% plus, uh, you know, we may get some interest from a value or dividend-oriented investor. But, you know, we're not there yet in terms of really kind of pounding the table. I don't think you're alone, Mona, that is for sure. <laughs> I, I struggle to find a single European equity market bull. For the last few months, we've had a market rally that I think and many others would also agree that has been built on the faith in policymakers and their ability to stabilise the situation. At some point this year, we were inevitably going to go through a period where that faith would be tested. Was the ECB news conference the beginning of that, just the period that we have to go through where the faith in the policymakers' ability to stabilise the global economy is tested somewhat? And what is your advice to investors listening to this that may experience that in the coming weeks? Yeah, you know, we went through a dramatic fall in December. We fell peak to trough probably around 20% on the S&P. And then we went through a dramatic reversal. So now we're up about 17% from the December 24th lows. 
it's natural after that kind of one-way directional upward movement to get a period of consolidation of profit-taking. I think it's actually healthy. Um, what we have to wait for now is the next set of catalysts to emerge to drive us to perhaps either a next leg upward or maybe some sideways movement. But what we're watching closely is uh, those two economies that we mentioned earlier, the U.S. and China, to really pull us out of this. So we'll get a jobs number this morning, which may be somewhat telling if the U.S. is, uh, you know, will be able to decouple further. But what we're really looking for as we enter the second half of this year is whether the mm-hmm. Chinese stimulus will be able to be effective and well, whether the U.S. earnings growth story is effective as well. Nicely framed and uh, a mystery here in March. Mona Mahajan, thank you so Mona, much. Mona, thank you. With Allianz. What a perfect time to speak to Kathy Jones of Schwab as we look at fixed income and so much of this uh, uh, Kathy is Draghi adjusts it's got nothing to do with America but and the but in your world is the terminal value of where the yield is heading doesn't it migrate a little bit lower yeah, Tom, I would definitely agree. Um, we had been looking at a trading range, maybe, you know, the um, in the 10-year treasury around 25 to 3% this year, but I think uh, it could break below 25 based on some of the weakness we've seen in, in global uh, economic activity, particularly those horrible numbers out of China overnight. So, um, yeah, we think that it, uh, it drifts lower from here and that the Fed is done raising rates. 275 just seems to be the line in the sand now at the upper end of a really narrow trading range. Are you saying we're going to be back in a trading range, Kathy, but it shifts lower? Yeah, um, we had our call had been that we had peaked last year at three and a quarter for the cycle, and that we're probably holding about a two and a half to three percent range. But now I'm I'm looking at maybe two and a quarter to two and three quarters as more likely range. Um, a lot's going to depend, of course, on whether we bounce back from yeah. some of this weakness. But it it is looking more more on the downside than the upside. Hey, Kathy, we talked to uh, equity types like Lizanne Saunders about the single digit world, and of course. We've had many years of bull market migrating to high single digit, and some would psychologically frame double digit. In your world, that's not the case. Tell me that savers are going to get used to a nominal return of 3 or 4%. Is that true? Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, it's, it'd be very difficult to get a, a lot above that, given the um, aging of the population, the level of growth that we're expecting. It wouldn't make a lot of sense to get you know, to expect much okay. higher than that. So is dividend growth my new yield? Well, that has been for quite some time, but I would say now there's real competition. I mean, you can get 2.5% in a very short-term risk-free piece of paper. So that is stiff competition for the volatility that you might see in equities. John, it'd be a good property for you, the real dividend growth. Oh, thanks. I think it's just... Is that just just an extra show? It's got another show and it's got a a tone to it. Six basis points, German tenure, Kathy. Just phenomenal. It's this security that everybody wants to be able to short but just gets their face ripped off every time they try and do it, Kathy. (laughs) What is going on in Germany? Well, I think what we're seeing, as Draghi pointed out, is just the real impact of all this trade conflict that we've had. So we have the slowdown in growth that's coming out of both China um, and now out of Europe as a result of all this 
trade business that's going on. And I think that that is the issue for the Fed now. You know, we can't be uh, isolationist in the sense that we, we're, we're open enough to global trade to feel its impact as well. But I think, yeah, Germany is so dependent on, on trade, and particularly trade with China, uh, that that's really what's affecting um, the bond market. So, Kathy, I was watching Eurodollar yesterday break down, then break down again, then keep breaking down into the end of yesterday's session. And I was asking myself a couple of questions. How much of this move as a percentage was about the policy that the ECB had introduced and how much of it as a percentage was just the total lack of belief that the policy will actually work? Kathy, what is driving Europe right now, the former or the latter? Yeah, I would say it's probably the latter because although... um Draghi introduced some easier policy that should, you know, is designed to help the banking system, designed to help the economy. I don't think there's a lot of faith that there's enough firepower there to really do it. I I look, Kathy, at at where we are after Draghi, and it's clearly a reaffirmation of lower rates as well. Give me a Schwab prediction on inflation and that what that does to my lovely total return. Well, we're actually seeing a little bit of an uptick in inflation this year, but we think some of that is driven by energy that not only flows through the top line, but will flow through a little bit to the the underlying core rate. But mm-hmm. we're still seeing it uh, pretty tame. I mean, I don't think that we're looking for anything above 2% in core inflation yeah, anytime soon. What do you recommend for somebody desperate for yield? We had a gentleman the, uh, yesterday uh, on loans, and he's, you know, he's spouting 7 and 8% coupons. I mean, above Above high yield. I mean, what do you recommend for someone who says, Kathy, this is all great, but I can't get it done at 4%? Yeah, there's, the only way you can get above 4% is to take a certain amount of risk. And so we just try to be realistic with people and say, sure, sure you can get 7%, but you're going to have to be in very low credit quality towards the end of the business cycle. You know, you probably don't want to sure. have your whole portfolio uh, in high yield or loans at this stage of the game. I mean, I mean you, we, don't, we don't talk enough about this, John. Well, we're going this to right brutal. now. Are you, comfortable, we are? are you comfortable, Kathy, saying that we've seen the tights? in high yield after the rally over the last couple of months at about 400 yeah. basis points over. Is that it? Yeah, I, I I still think so. I mean, I've been really surprised by the magnitude of the rally since, uh, you know, Christmas Eve uh, in high yield and, and generally speaking in, in all the spreads. But I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that we've probably seen the tights. You see, okay, Kathy, it's, if you say tights, it's okay. Farrell gets like this on Fridays because he's preparing for the real <laughs> yield. John, wise guy, I'm not going to ask Ms. Jones to explain this. Would you explain what the leotard is? So typically, in any given market, Europe, the United States, and let's talk about the United States for that matter, you'll have a benchmark. So you'll be 400 basis points over the benchmark of a similar maturity. So basically, when you say that we're really tight, you're looking at high yield over treasuries at about 400 basis points um, for the overall index. A difference that, that most in yield of four against. percentage four, points. 400 basis points. Can you go to percentage points, points for mere mortals? Four percentage points. Thank you, sir. Which, which is pretty tight, Tom, given to how wide things had got through December. Big V-shaped recovery, Kathy, in high yield. Big V-shaped recovery in equities. Do you see this being a story that goes beyond credit, that we've had the V-shaped recovery and that we've exhausted the Federal Reserve fueled rally of the last couple of months? Well, I think at least for the time being, um, I, I think total return year to date and high yield is something like seven, seven and a half percent. Wow. I mean, that's a whole year 
worth of performance right there. So I think we have mm-hmm. to back and fill to some extent. I certainly don't see um, the impetus for moving a lot further from here, yeah. unless you really, really think that the, you know, A, that the economy is going to turn around and go sharply higher, but the Fed's going to sit back and allow it to do that. Very good. Kathy Jones, thank you so much for Schwab. An important update for U.S. investors on all the drama we saw yesterday in Europe. Let us begin and let's really focus here on the fabric of the American labor economy. We can do that with Julia Coronado. And the reason that Dr. Coronado's with us, John, is she was loving the nickelback you know? and the choice <laughs> of picking out the one with ZZ Top's Billy Gibbons in it as well. Julia, Dr. Coronado, are you a large nickelback fan? I am not a Nickelback fan. I'm sorry to disappoint you, Tom. I'm, I'm, uh, I am astonished that it is being debated on the floor of Congress. It was I think f- there's no debate. I'm well, more astonished <laughs> it made an appearance on this program. <laughs> I, I, we play, Julia, we play... Julia, that is equally astonishing. Julia's too young for this, but we played Kansas and Sticks earlier in the week, so we finished strong the, the Nickelback. Bar is so low. memories of that. The, the bar is so low for the show memories. this week. I'm sure you do. Let us Let's go out to the broad Midwest of Kansas, carry on my wayward son. Forget about the East Coast, the West Coast. Julia, what's the employment fabric of the great Middle West of this nation? The employment fabric is the service sector, and we're going to be relying on that service sector as we move through the year because I think we're going to see a fading in the manufacturing and uh, energy sector hiring that has been a powerhouse in the last couple of years, that's got to fade with the global slowdown. We're we're starting to see the cracks there, and and that's where we should feel the pain. The service sector is what's likely to carry us through. It was resilient in the last global slowdown during 2015 and 2016, and it's largely domestically oriented. As long as consumers keep the faith, that can be a virtuous cycle with consumer spending, supporting the service sector and the service sector continuing to add jobs. John, this is so important. If we're in a virtuous cycle, that's how you get to where the optimists are. This is a big, big issue right now, not just for the United States, but for Europe too. Even in Europe, the service sector is pretty resilient. Yes, Draghi said this yesterday. You've got these two economies. Global manufacturing, Mm -hmm. I would argue, is largely in a recession at the moment. It is not looking good at all, especially in China and Europe. In here in the United States, it is two economies as well, Julia. So essentially, you're saying that the service sector can pull up the rest of the economy and won't be brought down by what is happening with manufacturing worldwide? Well, I think we will be brought down. We will see growth moderate. I think there's no doubt about the fact that 2019 is likely to be much slower than 2018. But the service sector dynamics can be resilient to that slowdown. Uh, and we've seen that before, and, and that will be, you know, that, that's, that's going to be our saving grace. It's not going to necessarily yeah. accelerate to offset the slowing manufacturing, but it will yeah. be a buffer to that slowdown. Julia, on the global basis, and the, the cliche that Chairman Powell is central banker to the world, maybe Chairman Draghi is central banker to the world. EM currencies have had a real tough go of it the last 10, 12 trading sessions with even Argentinian peso knocking out the new weakness yesterday. I mean, the Draghi effect or the Powell effect, they're global, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Central banking is a global game now. And uh, I think 
The Fed certainly is, has gotten on yeah. board with that in the last few years. They're talking and keeping their eye very closely on global developments. But yes, primarily yeah. the ECB and the Fed really set the tone right. for global markets. What is your observation on the jobs report? What will you look for at 830? Well, we've seen kind of a disconnect between a lot of the high-frequency job market indicators and other indicators of demand in the economy and payrolls. Payrolls have been accelerating in the last few months, and everything else has been moderating. So I expect a number, I'm a little bit below consensus. I'm looking for 150K. It looks like we're due for some correction down. Again, 150K is a healthy number. It's nothing to worry about. But we should see some, either a combination of downward revisions and slower higher. And and John, this shows the variance that's out there because we've got many others at 250 or 225K as well. There's a a real variance, folks, going into this number in uh, 18 minutes. Got to get your thoughts on wage growth too, Julia. Overwhelmingly, I think the consensus view now is even with wage growth getting towards decade highs of three-something percent, that that's not going to bleed into headline price pressures, that we won't see a big pickup inflation off the back of that. Do you agree with that, Julia? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in that camp. We just really haven't seen much pass through. It's not to say we're not seeing cyclical pressures in inflation. We are seeing, for example, goods prices pick up, goods inflation pick up. But there's a lot of other structural factors from, from housing, from technology, um, yeah. from health care that are offsetting that and weighing inflation down. So it's going to be really hard right. to see a notable acceleration. How do you, and Julia Coronado with us, folks, macro policy perspectives as we uh, move to jobs. Hey, Jim Glassman with us in a bit, and then Abby Joseph Cohen as well. Dr. Coronado, how do you study retail America? Do you like partition bricks and mortar in Amazon, or is there a different Coronado method? There's been such a disruption in retail in the last couple of years, an accelerated disruption. And that actually, I think it adds to the noise in the data. For example, what we saw in retail sales uh, in December was overstated because we just can't do the things like we, we like to do, like seasonally adjust the data, because all the patterns have been disrupted. So taking the temperature of the retail sector is a lot harder than it used to be, and, and you need to be more patient. And you need to sort of smooth through some of the noise in the data because it's just all over the map now. And that's true both for measures of inflation and measures of sales. Julia, if we get another tick higher in the participation rate, do we have some people on the FOMC that start looking back at their policies over the last couple of years and say, you know what, maybe we got this wrong? You know, second guessing is is hard to do. Uh, You know, I think that they were making the decisions coming off the zero lower bound, uh, you know, with a healthy labor market and a falling unemployment rate. It didn't make sense to stay at zero. Uh, You know, and I think right now the debate is more around, okay, now that we are closer to something that looks like a neutral interest rate, now we can let this run a little bit and see how far we can go with it. Uh, but I think, you know, second guessing getting off the zero lower bound when the economy was right. doing well, you know, I, I don't think many people are going to regret that decision per se. Uh, Julia Carnado, thank you so much. Macro policy perspectives with a look at the job economy, and we'll continue uh, with this discussion. This discussion. 
This is a joy, an extensive conversation this morning with Abby Joseph Cohen. Uh, she's been a wonderful friend of Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance. And she joins us. Futures at negative 18, Dow Futures negative 173. Abby, wonderful to have you uh, with us this morning. As Jim Glassman was alluding to, within the synthesis of your work as a senior uh, investment strategist and advisory director at Goldman Sachs, can you say that America stands alone separate from Draghi and separate from the challenges of EM in China? Clearly, Tom, the United States has many advantages. And one of the things I am concerned about is that these disparities that we have benefited from in the U.S. are beginning to ease up a little bit. So, for example, he talked about the importance of immigration to the United States. Let's keep in mind that while we always focus on the quarterly GDP numbers, I think long-term economists look at potential growth rate of GDP, and that has come down in the United States. There are two key reasons. One is that productivity of our workers has come down. Maybe we've not been investing enough in terms of CapEx. But the other thing that's happened is that labor force growth is now slowing. Um, And one key component of that growth in labor force had been immigration. If we look at, at some early indicators, they're not looking good. So, for example, if we look at approved student visas, this is for foreign students coming to the United States, either for university studies or graduate level, that has declined double digit. Um, And in addition, there has been a sharp decline in the number of those special visas that we grant workers who have special skills and categories. And this is something, I I hope it's not the canary uh, in the coal mine, but we need to watch it carefully. Abby, I, I, want to, I, want, I want to say broader here and, and then go more micro later. But on a broader theme from what we heard from Mr. Draghi yesterday and his allusion late in the press conference to protectionism, are you working at this point at Goldman Sachs around wrapped around a mercantilistic America and we see the effect on the labor economy? We see the effect for Mr. Draghi and indeed a mercantilistic America. We see the effect for an ascendant Asia. You've raised so many different interesting points in that question. Let me try to respond briefly, Please. if I can. Uh, first of all, the United States in many ways does stand alone. Um, we have the most productive workers on the planet. My concern is that productivity impetus is slowing, number one. Number two, um, from a standpoint of our exposure to foreign trade, the United States is not as exposed. Uh, many of these other countries, Germany, Japan, and so on, more than four of their GDP is related to foreign trade. For the United States, it's roughly 15%. So those are different factors uh, as well. But nevertheless, over the last decade, the single fastest growing sector of the United States has been exports. And if our main customers outside the United States, which are developed economies, but also economies who have been buying our agricultural goods, as China has been doing, if those economies are slowing, or in the case of China, consciously not buying soybeans from the United States, that's not good for our GDP, or for our farmers, or for our other workers. Your Jeffrey Curry does brilliant work on commodities. I know he's been long gold, but he's always looking at the more the greater complexities of commodities as well. Abby, if China walks away in some form from these trade negotiations, what will be the ramification on the stock market and what will be the ramification on commodity China? 
Well, the simple answer, Tom, is something we've already seen um, in the equity markets. We have seen daily volatility related to whether the headline news is good or bad with regard to those trade talks. But let's talk more basics. And that is the issue properly has never really been the size of the trade deficit. In fact, we've seen the trade deficit balloon in part because of worry about what's going on with regard to tariffs. More on that later, if you wish. The real issue with regard to our conversations with China really should be where Mr. Lighthizer is focusing, and that is protection of intellectual property, no more forced technology transfers, and so on. And it's not quite clear to anyone not directly involved in those negotiations how that is going. One of the things we'd obviously like to see is the Chinese to say, okay, we're going to come back and we're going to buy U.S. soybeans, we're going to buy U.S. pork production, and so on. That would be an obvious public signal. To me, it is the less public signals having to do with this transfer of our research and development uh, to China. That, to me, is the real crux of these trade talks. If you're just joining us, Abby Joseph Cohen with us with Goldman Sachs, their advisory director and senior investment strategist. This on a jobs day with a stunning number off the corrected 300,000 plus number of a month ago coming in very light 20,000 but as our John Farrell uh, mentioned the bond market really not moving all that much the 10-year yield now in two basis points 2.61 percent separate from a discussion with Abby Joseph Cohen there's right now something really remarkable in terms of American technology and innovation, and that is we're seeing uh, the Dragon, the Crew Dragon, coming back from space where we're actually going to see a, a landing in the Atlantic Ocean. This is some 200 miles off the Florida uh, coast involved is a SpaceX recovery ship, and it really harkens back to another time. Abby, that's a good jump off to your life work studying technology and innovation in America. Elon Musk through SpaceX is trying to get that done, but give us the Goldman Sachs report card and how America's doing on technology. We're doing well, Tom, but we could be doing better. Um, we have been the global leader for decades. And one of the things that is very interesting to watch is that many other countries, China included, uh, but there are many others who have made a more conscious effort on the part of government policy to do the following things. Number one, make sure that enough students are educated in STEM. Number two, to provide funding for the basic research and the development which needs to follow. Uh, I'll also point out that while we all applaud the great success of SpaceX, so much of this is based upon NASA-developed technology. They're using NASA telemetry, NASA communications, NASA launch pads, and so on. And I think this is great. I think this kind of combination of public and private sector in a way is the way we've almost always done our space program. Um, And and by the way, for people who say, why are we spending money on this? Well, we're spending money in the United States uh, to get this done in terms of uh, what we're actually accomplishing in space. You know, it's extraordinary to see uh, something that harkens back to decades ago. And I really, just as an aside, folks, I can't say enough about seeing Ryan Gosling and the first man of Neil Armstrong in the challenges. SpaceX now coming in with a, the, the classic, uh, the, the, the parachutes coming down uh, with a capsule, and we'll see on that here in a bit. Abby, let us bring it over to the stock market. Everybody wants to know 
the call. Um, I, did you go triple leverage David Costin Long on December 26th? Um, well, <laughs> I, I have to say we all now know uh, with, uh, with 2020 hindsight that uh, Christmas Eve was uh, a gift uh, for investors. <laughs> it was a gift. Uh, it was a gift, um, but it also tells us not to worry terribly much about noise. And I'd say the same thing uh, about the employment data, uh, for example. So uh, what, the, what the markets took away in December, they gave back in January. It's a do-over. Um, and when we take a look at what's going on, we're looking at a U.S. economy that we don't think we'll see a recession, but there has been a moderation in GDP. Our potential yeah. growth rate is down now below 2%. Uh, there will be a moderation in profit growth. Obviously, the sugar high of those tax cuts um, is now gone, and we're going to be seeing mid-single-digit profit gains. And what this right. basically says to me is that within the fixed-income markets, you better be very careful. Um, I don't think you're going to see another move lower uh, in interest rates. Um, I think the opportunities are, as many people have already said on your show and elsewhere, uh, the opportunities uh, that do exist are in risk markets, uh, but the valuations there right. are okay, not wonderful. Is the trap, and I go back to your wonderful work with the CFA Institute, is the trap, and Abby, talk about a name from uh, your and my past, the wonderful Tom Gelvin when he was at Donaldson, Lufkin, Generet, sales become ever more precious. If we're in a single-digit bond, a single-digit equity world, people growing revenue at double-digit levels that's of an extraordinary value, isn't it? It certainly is, Tom. And what we are advising our clients really falls into that category. Number one, we're looking at companies that are generating good top-line growth, number one. Number two, we're encouraging owners of assets to think not so much about passive approaches, index-oriented approaches, but really active management. Um, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the valuation is okay, not great overall in a lot of the risk markets, but there has been so much focus on these passive index-oriented approaches, the opportunities are probably yeah. away from there, not just in equities, but also in fixed income, and I would argue as well in commodities. Uh, you know, we are blessed to have Jeff Curry and his excellent work um, in terms of telling us which way commodity markets are likely to go. But there are also individual uh, opportunities yeah. uh, to do well, or by the way, to do really poorly. Uh, but it, we, we think 2019 uh, in all markets is a year for active management. But Okay, I'll, I'll go with that, Abby. But our listeners go, that's all great, but only the fancy people like Abby Joseph Cohen at Goldman Sachs have access to those unique active opportunities. Can the public take advantage of active management here, or are they squeezed out by the private elite markets? I believe that many individual investors, Tom, in response to your extraordinarily important question, ought to be looking um, at some of the mutual fund complexes, uh, the ones that have had a long history of 
uh, providing funds that are not index-oriented. Um, I, I think uh, I, I shouldn't be listing uh, what mm-hmm. those companies are. People know what they are. My concern is that over the last uh, eight to ten years, so much of the new inflow into the equity market by individual investors has gone into index-oriented products, uh, and I think that's something that always feels good because you have lots of company. That's the problem. You, at this point, yeah. want to be invested in places where somebody is selecting companies where there's not quite so much um, right. uh, competition uh, to be buying those securities. Uh, if you're just joining us, Abby Joseph Cohen with an exceptionally generous uh, half hour today. She is advisory director, senior investment strategist at Goldman Sachs. I like what Ian Lingen wrote out at BMO Capital Markets, his title of his jobs report, that is not a typo. And that, of course, of payrolls increasing 20,000 two zero comma zero 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 we did get some bond market move but a little bit 10-year yield down to 2.60 back to 2.62 futures have deteriorated negative 14 ish now negative 20 on the S&P futures so there was a I want to say a reaction uh, to this jobs report but I would call it more measured than maybe what that stunning statistic would uh, suggest as well. Separately, a real moment for space. And I can tell you on the radio, it's tough to convey the beauty of the images of the SpaceX Dragon that just lay, uh, f- uh, fell down from space with four gorgeous parachutes. And Abby, what was amazing about it was it was totally different than anything you and I remember from Mercury, Gemini, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. It's all new. You really see that it's all new technology uh, that they're uh, dealing with. Abby, in the time that we have left, I want to synthesize in here what retirees should do, and then I want to move on to education uh, in America. Retirees have been trapped. I thought Bill Gross's uh, 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 phrases for it over the last 10 years really captured the repression that retirees were, are in. What do you recommend? They're not at Goldman Sachs. They're not doing fancy stuff at Goldman. What do savers and retirees need to do to prepare for the next 10 years? Tom, by using the word prepare, I think uh, that is really the key. One of the things that disturbs me a great deal uh, about individual investors today is that they're not prepared. Um, We see that young and middle-aged workers are saving way below what they need to be. And so while you and I and others on your program can talk about specific securities and products, the number one concern is how much money is actually being set aside for retirement, and it is extremely low. It's also extremely low even at companies that are providing some sort of payroll match. Um, I don't quite understand it. I think this represents some financial illiteracy uh, on the part of our nation, and, and this to me is, is very problematic. But let me ask, answer the specific question mm-hmm. uh, you asked, which is, what about the next 10 years? Um, I believe over the next 10 years, um, investors are well served uh, to be in, um, let's call them equity or equity-like assets rather than fixed income. I believe that the 30-some-odd-year bull market in bonds is over, not expecting interest rates to gallop higher, but nor am I expecting great returns. So I think that there are some um, 
uh, places within uh, the fixed income market for some individuals to go. There are also uh, mm-hmm. dividend generating equities uh, to look at, but not to focus right. on high yield uh, dividend uh, generators uh, because the high right. yields often indicate that there's an underlying fundamental problem, but rather companies right. that offer dividend growth. And let me hasten yeah. to add that this should not be viewed as specific advice to no, any particular individual. Yeah. I'm just providing uh, sort of right. an overview of but the horizon. Abby, you're the only one I know that can think with a clear thought on the debacle of owning stocks. We can turn to Kraft, where I grew up with Velveeta cheese, and I'm sure it was never, ever in your household as a child. But when you see the write-down of goodwill in a true ancient blue chip like Kraft, conservative retirees say, that's why I don't want to own stocks. Do corporations, is there a transparency now or is it all just financial engineering? Wonderful question. And the answer is, it depends. Um, and, And one of the things we always need to remind ourselves of is that good management is essential. Um, and managers that have assets that are valuable but don't use them appropriately are not helping anybody. Um, so we need to focus again on what are the metrics by which we measure whether a management is doing a good job. Uh, the one that we've often looked at are things like return on equity. My concern has been that equity itself is shrinking, uh, which means that returns on equity look like they're getting better, yeah. number one. Number two, the point that you raised is an essential one, and it's not new. If we go back and we look at the treatise uh, from the Dow Jones Industrial Average from the 1890s, what we basically see is that there were many so-called blue-chip companies that did not survive. And I think investors need to recognize that every economy shifts, um, and we just don't know for sure what's going to happen. Uh, The analogy that I love to point to is uh, in the late 19th century, when 90% of Americans worked on farms, and there was enormous concern about what was going to happen with this gosh darn newfangled equipment that was going to come into the farms and people were going to lose their jobs. Well, they did lose their jobs, uh, but we do see it was also the beginning of this enormous century of of American prosperity. Uh, So, well, my answer simply is, as a nation, we need to be prepared. We need to make sure that our children, in particular, uh, have the skills to be flexible, um, and have the skills to think. And, and that, I think, will protect them rather than saying, here is the specific profession or specific right. job for which you need to prepare. It, it would be inappropriate, Abby, uh, Joseph Cohen, for you to comment on other banks or even individual banks. But I must have you comment off of Draghi and the challenges of Euro, Europe on their Japanification and particularly the inability to clear their financial system to clear is a broad sense their banking system. What is the catalyst that Europe needs? Is it a political catalyst? Is it simply a courage and will? Or is there another path that you see for Europe to get its act back together? And we must recognize that the United States, after the financial crisis, benefited enormously from the tough love Uh, that we got from our regulators. Uh, The Fed, through the stress tests, the other regulators basically saying, 
when don't hide here. In right. fact, for the first few years, the major failures on those stress tests were the American subsidiaries of European banks. So we turn now to your question and basically to say it's taken them a long time uh, to get religion and they still don't have it uh, in some cases with regard to this. And I think part of it mm-hmm. is that the potential growth rate itself in Europe is lower than it is in the United States. We were able to ultimately move forward here uh, because we have a strong economy, vibrant labor force, and so on. Uh, Europe has, as you've pointed out before, a labor force that in some countries is not growing. And it is also um, a Europe where there is disparity Mm. in results. good returns uh, for workers in terms of wages and companies in Germany. Um, But let's take it to the next step. Some of the German companies, uh, some of the German banks are still facing uh, some difficulties. So um, I'm going to kick the question back to you. You said, does it take a political solution? The answer, in my view, is yes. Abby, one uh, more moment, if we could, uh, with you and your generous time today. It is International Women's Day. It's a heritage, folks. It at least goes back to 1909 uh, in what the Socialist Party of America did with Women's Day uh, in another time and place. And what I find so interesting, Abby, is the idea of women in rigor. You had the courage years ago to take what so many would suggest is a different path. I lump in with your excellence, Sally Krawcheck at Bernstein years ago on Wall Street. Give us a window into the first day you walked in the door. How difficult was it to be a woman at Goldman Sachs? The question, I think, should be how difficult has it been to be a woman in financial services? And I would back it up a little bit and say, for example, that women remain dramatically underrepresented uh, on univers- at universities in economics. Um, they, they, they basically are, you know, less than a quarter of the number of students. How do we fix that? Women faculty are less than 10%, and I think that's the issue. Uh, there is a real bias that has been proven in terms of both economics and finance at the graduate level, which means that we are not producing enough women PhDs and professors in these categories. So there aren't those sort of role models, number one. But number two, there have been uh, blatant uh, uh, um, instances of gender harassment um, in, in economics, uh, interestingly. Right. Um, in, in terms of our industry, the thing that I love to point to Please. are various studies that have been done that show, for example, Morningstar has some results that show equity mutual funds managed by women outperform. Um, fixed income mutual funds managed by women outperform. And I think it's because women have proven uh, that on a risk-adjusted basis, they are better long-term investors. They're less likely to be caught up in the statistical noise of day-to-day action or week-to-week action uh, in the markets. Um, Women tend to be more diligent when it comes to the numbers. And I know what I just said may sound um, maybe somewhat offensive uh, to some of your listeners. I don't mean it to be, um, but but those are what there was on the show. I got 30 seconds left. Isn't it fun watching the Washington Capitals? 
It's a delight watching the Washington Capitals. Can they do it again? I mean, folks, to review this, Ms. Cohen uh, has a direct personal relationship with Mr. Ovechkin, and it was magical last year as Abby Joseph Cohen partied with Mr. Ovechkin into May and June and July. Can they do it again, Abby? They have a great team. Um, there are some other good teams elsewhere, but you know I'm I'm already invested in Washington Capitals paraphernalia, um, so I'll, I'll go with the Capitals. Okay, again. Abby Joseph Cohen, thank you so much. New Jersey Devils, Abby Joseph Cohen's Washington Capitals tonight. We thank Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.